If you have your Bibles today, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All righteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. What should we do when a brother or sister in Christ sins against us? Perhaps we may be tempted to show a vengeful anger or a belittling ridicule or an apathetic indifference toward him or toward her. Perhaps we may be tempted to involve others by rallying others to our support against that brother or that sister. However, if we are to exercise a pure love for the brethren, if we are to be faithful to the Lord who has called us with a holy calling, then we must resist all the temptations mentioned above and fall upon our knees before the God of grace and mercy and humbly beseech the Lord to grant to the fallen brother or sister genuine repentance and forgiveness. Dear ones, our hearts can either become hardened or softened before God at the sins of the brethren. We can either become cold or fervent in our zeal for the Lord at the sins of others. We can either rejoice or weep at the sins of our brethren. We can either withdraw our love or we can pour out our love toward the brethren who fall into some sin. We can either seek to expose in the most public way their sin or rather to cover their sin as long as is profitable. What we do in such cases not only says something about the fallen brother or the fallen sister and his or her sin, but what we do also says a great deal about each one of us and our own sin. Certainly we are all prone to such sins, but God grant us mercy to plead not only for our fallen brother, but also to plead for God's forgiveness in loving so little those whom Christ loves so much. As we consider our text this Lord's Day, we shall be answering the following questions. Who is this brother, first of all, and what is to be done for him? Second question, what is a sin which is not unto death? And third, what is a sin unto death? First of all, then, 
Who is this brother and what is to be done for him? Look with me at 1 John 5, the first part of verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. The use of the word brother occurs in ten separate verses throughout the letter of 1 John. Dear ones, love for the brethren is one of the tests that the Apostle John frequently holds before us in his epistle here as a mark of one who is a child of God. We have these particular marks that evidence themselves in the lives of those who are children of God. First of all, a love for God himself, according to 1 John 5.1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Love both God the Father and God the Son, the one who begat as well as the one who is begotten. The love of holiness or love for holiness. In 1 John 2, verses 5 through 17 is summarized, the love for holiness, where it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then there's the the mark, the evidence of love for the truth that is mentioned by The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, that is, every spiritual gift, every spiritual manifestation. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Try the spiritual gifts of those who come saying that they're prophets, those who say that they're they're ministers, those who say that they're teachers. Try the spirits whether they are of God. How will you try them? Well, you'll certainly use the doctrine, the worship, the church government, the discipline, the moral commandments of God that we find in his word in order to try them. And so that implies a love for the truth if we are to try those who come professing that they are from God. And then finally... The last mark that is mentioned is love for the brethren. 1 John 3.14, we read, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Likewise in 1 John 4.20, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. 
For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? These tests, dear ones, these marks are not set before us as requiring perfection before we can have assurance of faith, but are set before us to evaluate whether there is a love that desires God, that desires holiness, that desires the truth, that desires what is good for our brethren. Who is a brother? A brother is one who has given indication not only by his mouth that he trusts in Christ alone for his eternal salvation, but also manifests in his life that he desires to live for Christ. In spite of his many weaknesses, he desires to live for Christ. He may or may not be a member of our church. He may or may not adhere to our terms of communion within our church. Nevertheless, he professes to be united to Christ, the Son of God, by faith alone. The learned and godly Mr. Gillespie, commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, makes clear that our love for the brethren, or saints as he calls them, is not limited to the brethren of our church alone when he states, and I quote, Lovest thou all the saints in general, praying for them all? Lovest thou all the saints in particular whom thou knowest? That is, thou darest not confine or limit this love to those saints only who are altogether of thy opinion, or who have some intimacy of friendship with thee. Nay, nor to those who never wronged thee never strove with thee, who never spake evil of thee, but all whom thou hast reason to judge to be saints, thou lovest them, wishest well to them, art ready to do them good according to thy power. And if thou be at variance or difference with any of them, thou prayest God to make them and thyself of one heart and of one mind. And it is an affliction of spirit to thee to be at variance with any that are Christ's. Canst thou thus clear thyself in thy conscience? And darest thou say these things before the searcher of hearts? Then is thy love a true love. We have a long ways to grow, dear ones, as Christians in this area. The brother we are to pray for, dear ones, may be disorderly in his doctrine or practice, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He may sin against the truth, as did Peter when he refused to eat with the Gentiles in Antioch. He may even speak evil against you. But an erring brother is not to be viewed as an enemy to be hated and despised and cursed in prayer. And if not before God, if he is not to be cursed and despised before God, 
then he's not to be cursed and despised before man. James chapter 3, verses 10 and following speak, I think, ever so clearly to this very issue. Let us listen to the Word of God. James chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them or by them that make peace. Dear ones, even when a brother is excommunicated or sister is excommunicated from the visible church for his or her obstinacy in some sin or error, he or she is treated by the church, the scripture says, as a heathen and publican, as one. It doesn't mean that he or she is actually a heathen and a publican, but is treated as a heathen or publican as it refers to our fellowship, our familiar fellowship with that person as being outside of the visible church until he or she repents, until he or she repents. But he is not cursed and sentenced to hell as a reprobate. We are to continue in prayer that the discipline administered in love would have its desired effect in drawing back to the Lord Jesus Christ those who are even disciplined and excommunicated according to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. There it says the purpose of that excommunication is that the Spirit may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. We may not be able under such circumstances to have familiar and close fellowship with such an erring brother, an obstinate brother or sister. <clears throat> and we may even have to, as a result, withdraw ourselves from him or her according to 2 Thessalonians 3.14. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in that instance. 
And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. But we must continue, as Paul says in the very following verse, to count him not as an enemy, but rather admonish him as a brother. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Such an erring and obstinate brother is humbly brought before the throne of grace in prayer and his repentance is earnestly and sincerely sought from the Lord. When John says, he shall ask and he will give him life. That is, the Lord will grant him a genuine repentance that leads to life, as Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For Paul says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Even the righteous judgment for which the psalmist prays will fall upon the wicked enemies of God has in view... They're turning to God in repentance. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 83, verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Martin Luther correctly states what the attitude of the Christian should be in praying concerning those who are avowed enemies of the gospel. He says, quote, we should pray that our enemies be converted and become our friends. And if not, that their doing and designing be bound to fail and have no success and that their person perish rather than the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. If this is to be our attitude, dear ones, toward the enemies of God, that we should even pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us. What should be the love we have for our brethren in Jesus Christ as manifested in our prayers for them when they fall into sin or into error? We should be weeping. We should be weeping and calling upon God to have mercy upon them. For to become calloused or indifferent is an act of pride, dear ones, on our parts, wherein we act as though we ourselves are beyond falling into the same sin. Dear ones, we are warned by the Lord through his apostle in 1 Corinthians 10.12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Yes, we must be indignant about sin. For all sin is committed against our beloved God and Savior. But we must not be more indignant about the sin of others than we are about our own sin. You see, dear ones, we are not only to demonstrate our love for the brethren in the way we speak and act toward them, but we also or to de demonstrate our love in the way that we pray for them, or, in some cases, the lack of love that we show to them in the way we don't pray for them.
as the case may be. In fact, it is in our private prayer closet that our true heart and attitude is revealed, I would submit to you, is revealed about our brethren. What we really think and believe about our brethren shows up in our private time of prayer, in that secret closet. If we genuinely love an erring brother in that private place of prayer before God, if we weep before the Lord on account of the sin that he or she has committed, and even when it is committed against ourselves, we will not only love them in that private place of prayer, but we will love them when we leave our prayer closet and close the door behind us. We will, by God's grace, be able, I submit to you, if we are doing that, we will, by God's grace, be able to root out bitterness out of our heart that may take root or prevent any evil speaking that may be communicated to others. I submit to you, dear ones, that we can generally judge the quality of our love for the brethren by how much time we spend in prayer pouring out our hearts before the Lord on behalf of even an erring brother. Perhaps you have observed, as I have, how our love for the brethren is almost uh, picture perfect. In fact, we can sing the praises long and loud as long as we are on good terms with one another. However, brotherly love, dear ones, is tested and sorely tested when differences in judgment and especially when sin or error separate brethren. And although the enemy would, through such temptations, seek to divide brethren as to love, nevertheless, the Lord sends such trials into our lives to test the quality of our love for the brethren. For all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Will we immediately go on the attack when differences, sin, or error enter the picture? Or will we be immediately driven to our knees to intercede earnestly, humbly, and lovingly for that brother or sister? Although there is a need at times to take immediate action because of the nature of the sin that's committed or the nature of the error that is committed by a brother or sister. For example, Paul publicly, right at that very time, rebukes Peter, who by his own action in refusing to eat with the Gentiles was saying, in effect, he was compromising the gospel of Christ by indicating that one must, in effect, become a Jew in order to enjoy fellowship in the body of Christ. And although there is a need to confront a brother or sister in love when the sin is obstinate, when the sin is public, or when the sin is aggravated in some way, nevertheless, dear ones, our first and primary recourse, if we would exercise a pure love for our brother or toward our sister, is ordinarily not to speak about him in the hearing of others, but rather to speak about him in the hearing of our Heavenly Father. Only after we have taken that course of action will we be able to follow the admonition that we find in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, 
brethren. And when we find that term brethren, that doesn't exclude the women. It's just, again, a, a broad, a general term. In other words, brothers and sisters. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Lest thou be brought into the same or similar temptation as that to which your brother or your sister has fallen. The Apostle John in the text before us, dear ones, calls us to exercise a pure love for the brethren by taking that brother or sister into our heart and unto the Lord in prayer, even as the high priest carried over his heart an ephod with twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel when he, the high priest, went into the holy place to pray unto the Lord. The people of God were upon his heart. So should the people of God, so should our brothers and sisters be upon our heart as we go to the Lord in prayer. The second question, what is a sin that is not unto death? Look with me at 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. Then jumping down to verse 17. All righteousness, or I'm sorry, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Here the Apostle John distinguishes between a sin that is not unto death and a sin that is unto death. This distinction between a sin not unto death and a sin unto death, I would submit to you, does not support the Romish view of mortal sins versus venial sins. Now, I just brought with me today a catechism, Roman Catholic catechism as it is. It's entitled The New Catechism of the Catholic Faith so that I can read to you from their own words what they say about what a mortal sin is as opposed to a venial sin. And in order to show to you that when God, through the Apostle John, talks about a sin that's not unto death and a sin that is unto death, that the Roman Catholic Church has erred greatly in their ideas here with regard to mortal and venial sins. just going to read, uh, go through a few of these questions and listen closely. Question 12 says, how many kinds of sins are there? The answer, there are two kinds of sins, mortal sins and venial sins. Remember, this is not the, the truth. This is what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. Question 13, what is a mortal sin? A mortal sin is a serious violation of the law of God. To be guilty of mortal sin, the action, word, desire, thought, or neglect must be seriously wrong. You must know it is seriously wrong. You must deliberately and freely choose to do it. Question 14. What happens to your soul if you commit mortal sin? 
you lose all of the grace you have ever obtained? Question 15. What happens if you die in the state of mortal sin? You will go to hell. Question 16. Are all sins against the commandments mortal sins? No, some sins are small, venial sins. To tell a lie is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. A lie that is not serious is a venial sin. A serious lie is a mortal sin. Question 17. What is the greatest evil in the world? Mortal sin. Examples of mortal sin. Serious hatred. Notice again in front of not just hatred, but serious hatred. Serious hatred. Disregard of the poor, the sick, the underprivileged. Serious neglect of work or family or other duty. Refusal to worship God. Serious violation of chastity. I don't know how you can have serious violation of chastity or not serious, but serious violation of chastity. Grave misuse of alcohol or narcotics. Question 18. Why is mortal sin the greatest evil in the world? Mortal sin brings more unhappiness than any other evil. Mortal sin makes the sinner unhappy. God punishes mortal sin severely. Mortal sin costs Christ his terrible suffering and death. Notice that. Mortal sin cost Christ his terrible suffering and death, not venial sin. Mortal sin will bring you to hell if you do not give it up. Just two more questions. Question 20. What is a venial sin? A venial sin is a violation of the law of God that is not so serious. Examples of venial sins. Small acts of uncharitableness, impatience, telling a small lie, stealing a small amount of money, being slightly late for Mass on Sunday, small family arguments and disagreements. Question 21, last one. Does venial sin deprive the soul of grace? Venial sin does not deprive the soul of grace. Venial sin gradually weakens the will and thus, little by little, prepares the way for your soul to fall into mortal sin. Dear ones, such of you cannot help but lead, on the one hand, to antinomianism, and the wanton breaking of God's commandments and laws in the Christian life, where we justify a sin as not being that serious and nothing to really worry about. Or on the other hand, it cannot help but lead to Arminianism in the Christian life, where we believe that one is justified by the things that he does or doesn't do, rather than justified by faith in Christ, who kept all of the law of God from the smallest degree to the highest degree, however we might interpret the laws that, that we find. He kept every commandment of God in thought, word, and deed and imputes that righteousness 
to those who trust and believe in him alone for eternal salvation. Contrary to the view of Rome in regard to sin, the biblical position promoted by our Reformed and Presbyterian forefathers is summarized in the larger catechism. Notice the difference here. Question 24. What is sin? Answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Question 152. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserve at the hand of God. Answer. Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserves his wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come and cannot be expected expiated but by the blood of Christ. Question 150. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves? We've already said they all deserve the punishment of God, the same punishment of God, but are are all the sins, all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Answer. All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous. Not equally heinous. But some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And so we can promote a further aggravation. If I, for example, hate somebody in my heart, Jesus says, I have committed murder in my heart. But it's an aggravated sin to go and act upon that particular hatred in my heart and actually to murder that person. But is the hatred in my heart deserving of everlasting punishment? Absolutely. Thus we see from this brief survey that all unrighteousness is sin. As John declares in 1 John 5.17, All unrighteousness is sin, John says, and there is a sin not unto death. Any lack of conformity to the absolutely perfect righteousness of God is sin. And and any one sin, whether we conceive of it as being great or small, deserves the everlasting condemnation and wrath of God. However, dear ones, the good news... The good news is that Christ died to redeem his people from every sin. Every sin, great or small. And it is only through embracing Christ by faith alone that we can be freely pardoned of all sin and have the gift of everlasting life. Although it is true that every sin without distinction by its very nature deserves the eternal wrath of God, Nevertheless, we can make our sin, as we said, even more reprehensible before God by certain aggravations of those sins. A sin, dear ones, a sin which is not unto death, as John speaks of this sin, is therefore not an unimportant or little sin. That's not what John is saying. It is a sin that indeed deserves 
the eternal wrath and condemnation of God, but it is a sin that may be forgiven by the unfathomable grace and mercy of God. It is a pardonable sin. Romans 5.20 says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Well, what sins might this include then? The sin that is not unto death. Sins that are not unto death may include sins against God, like acts of false worship, unbelief, embracing error of any kind, blasphemy with our lips or hearts, covenant breaking with God, profaning the Sabbath day, neglecting secret or family worship, mere outward formalism in worship, just going through the motions of worship, are all violations of sins against God, but are not sins in and of themselves, sins unto death. They are pardonable. They are forgivable. Sins that are not unto death may also include sins against our fellow man that may be forgiven by the grace of God like disrespect against parents, murder, persecution of the righteous, sinful anger, lust, immorality, theft, bitterness, malice, discontentment, in our hearts, evil speaking against others, lying, and filthy communication, whereby we may not directly blaspheme God by the words that we use, but we use language, four-letter words that are not edifying, that do not, that are not seasoned with grace which in many cases even profane things that God has actually given to us to use in marriage for his glory or in other situations, which is filthy communication. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about sins there. Blasphemy is one sin. It lists next filthy communication. Filthy communication is not necessarily the same thing as blaspheming our God it is using our speech and the words that proceed from our mouth in an unwholesome an unsound way not for edification and building up all sins which we have committed against God or man in thought word or deed dear ones may be forgiven except one except one all sins which deserve the eternal wrath of God may be separated from us as far as the east is from the west, except one. For though every sin deserves eternal death and damnation, God may mercifully forgive every sin, except one. Thus there is, dear ones, no sin except one that your brother could commit against you or against the Lord that you shouldn't be talking in all humility or taking, I should say, in all humility and love before the throne of grace. 
We cannot earnestly kneel, dear ones, in prayer, weeping for the sin a brother has committed and even committed against us, or a sister has committed even against us, and quickly stand from prayer in bitterness and malice or envy to speak evil of him. Especially when we remember and consider the infinite mercy and grace that God has had toward each and every one of us. And how Christ has forgiven us so much that we show such disdain for others. Disrespect, scorn, and ridicule for those whom Christ has rescued and saved just like you and me. Third question, third part of our outline. What is the sin unto death? 1 John 5.17 I'm sorry, 1 John 5.16 the latter part of that verse. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. So what is this sin? First of all, let me share with you what it is not. The sin unto death is not a sin that merely leads to physical death. For God's people in the scripture did indeed pray for and repent of sins that might lead to or did in fact lead to physical death. In Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 14 and 15 we read, Again, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yes, certain sins may lead to our physical death, but concerning those sins we may pray and indeed must do so on behalf of a brother or sister. In the church of Corinth, The division within that church had led many to be sick and it says that even some slept. Were they not to pray for one another? No, that was their duty as well as that was the response of love even to pray for those who were sick due to their sin or even those, not praying for those who had already died, but praying for those who might be heading in that particular direction. Secondly, neither does John here refer to a sin that's deserving of capital punishment, a sin unto death. For certainly one who is guilty of of such a sin that deserves capital punishment may himself pray and repent of his sin and so may others pray for him likewise. David certainly committed sins that were worthy of death in having been involved in murder and explicitly in adultery. And yet we see he was forgiven in Psalm 51. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 through 16 says that he blasphemed God, which is a crime deserving of death, to blaspheme God. And other crimes and sins that he committed But he says God had mercy upon him in his ignorance. 
Nor is this sin unto death a rejection, simply a rejection of the gospel, for we may pray for all those who reject the truth and even persecute us for proclaiming the gospel to them. In Matthew 5:44, the Lord Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us. Certainly those who persecute us would be those at least who have rejected the truth outwardly. As to whether they will ever be converted in the future, that's God's part of the... He knows that. We do not. But we are to pray for them. We are to pray for them that God might alter and change their hearts. They would no longer have that type of attitude toward Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, what is it then? The sin into death. It's the same sin that we find referred to in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. The Lord Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, to the leaders of Israel, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. I will not obviously be able to spend a great deal of time upon the subject, but let me note a few characteristics about this unpardonable sin for which we are not to pray. First of all, it is a kind of blasphemy. It is a blasphemy, it says, according to the word of Christ, against the Holy Spirit. Rather than being a mere single act of blasphemy that proceeds out of our mouth, it is more a settled and determined attitude of attitude of blasphemy toward God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Particularly against the Holy Spirit, because of the Holy Spirit's ministry within this world in convicting of sin and judgment and righteousness. Secondly, it is not a sin that is committed by profane and vile heathens. It's not a sin committed by those who are outside of the church of Jesus Christ. The unpardonable sin. It's not a sin committed by those who have never heard the gospel of Christ. Or even if they have heard it, they may have rejected it. It's not a sin committed by those outside of the visible church. It is a sin committed by members of the visible church who have heard and professed a knowledge of the truth. Those who have and the, the knowledge, those who have heard the gospel, 
those who have been brought into by way of baptism and instruction and training know the truth of Jesus Christ. Know it ever so clearly. Have heard it. Could repeat back to you the truth. Know the catechism, the theology, these types of things. It is a it is a person who is very, very familiar with the truth, but who has never truly embraced the truth. Thirdly, it is a total apostasy, a complete falling away from the gospel of Jesus Christ so that one who professed to love the gospel of Christ and had received much light from the knowledge of the word now willfully turns his back upon Christ and the gospel and declares he hates the Lord and completely renounces the gospel. He hates Christ. He hates the truth. He hates the good news of Jesus Christ. If he could, person who commits the sin into death, if he could, such a one would pull down Christ from heaven and crucify him all over again. He despises the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that Christ stands for. He despises and hates the church of Jesus Christ after having received such knowledge of the truth. He despises all those who are united to Christ by faith and desires in word and deed to destroy every remnant of the truth of Christ. He sins against the Holy Spirit by solemnly declaring Christ and the gospel to be lies and even the works of the devil. Such persons who are guilty of this sin are so calloused that they no longer even know the conviction of the Holy Spirit at all. For God withdraws from them all such means from, from them, from all those who fall into and commit this particular unpardonable sin. They don't even care any longer. They're so callous. They don't even care any longer the sins that they commit and the hatred they have for Christ. It's no big deal to them. In fact, if anything, they rather enjoy it. It's what moves them in their life to hate Christ and and to hate the truth of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, we must be ever so careful not to throw this particular sin carelessly around at people without there being an overwhelming testimony from the Church of Christ that someone has fallen into such a grievous, unpardonable sin. John does not present this sin at this point in order that true believers might be driven from the assurance of faith. To the contrary, he does so in order to warn all professing believers, all professing Christians, all those who are part of the visible church of Jesus Christ, to warn all who hear and make profession of the truth, to warn them that there is such a sin and that those who completely apostatize from Christ and the gospel may fall into that sin. This is certainly, dear ones, not true of any Christian, whether that Christian is weak or strong in faith or regardless of the struggles that they go through. This is not true of that particular person. 
For Christ has promised in John chapter 6, verses 37 and 38, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. For only those who are guilty of this sin, for only these, we are not to pray. Thus, when we fail, dear ones, to pray for fellow brethren who have sinned against us, who have sinned against others, who have even sinned against Christ in some way, whether we realize it or not, when we fail to pray for them, either by way of a willful determination on our part, or simply just not caring to pray for them, we are unwittingly placing these brethren into the same camp as those who have sinned the sin unto death for whom we are not to pray. God, help us to love the brethren, yea, even erring, struggling, and weak brethren. Enough to pray for them, as David has said in Psalm 119, verse 136. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, 
and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.